uh, please, to pray with me. Father in heaven, it is good to be yours and we pray that as yours now we would listen to you. To listen to this one who is your servant, who speaks to us by way of this particular passage. Help us to see it, to hear it, to believe it, that our faith may be strengthened. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Isaiah and chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49, please. I want to read, I think, just the first six verses. Isaiah chapter 49, please. Hear the word of God. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing, and and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Now, as I mentioned last Sunday, I want to take up, if God will help me, these four servant songs as they're called by Isaiah. Songs because their poems could be sung about a servant, one who is the servant of the Lord. And these aren't necessarily easy for us to discern. It's as if Isaiah is kind of carrying us along and bringing us through and, and almost as a mystery saying, uh, now who really is this servant? Can you discern? Can you get it? Can you, under, can you really understand? Because he speaks of servants of the Lord, first of, of people. Um, even as we read through Isaiah's prophecy, we find that, that Isaiah himself is referred to as a servant of the Lord. There's a man named Cyrus who's mentioned as a servant of the Lord. The nation of Israel is mentioned as a servant of the Lord. And yet there is one that we come across in these particular passages who is sort of the servant of the Lord. He kind of, kind of goes beyond, transcends all the others. His, his calling is, is unique, couldn't be fulfilled by the others. So he serves the Lord, yes, but in a way unique, particular, uh, only to him. Last Sunday we picked up this expression, servant of the Lord, as it applies to Jesus, it appears. This one who is chosen by the Lord, the Lord's delight, the one upon whom the Lord's spirit is, this one who will come and set everything right. And while Isaiah may have been a prophet and thus the servant of the Lord, while Israel had been God's people in a sense and and chosen of the Lord, this one is going to come and do what neither of them can do, only they could point to. And that is that this servant is coming and he is the one who's going to make everything right. And he'll, he'll do it differently than the others. He'll do it differently than any other, than any could imagine. 
He isn't going to come shouting and screaming. He needn't do that because it isn't so much that shout and scream that, that accomplishes. It's what he's going to do by way of his death, by way of the cross. We'll see that as we get to the servant song in Isaiah chapter 53. So he's going to come and, and he needn't draw that kind of attention to himself. He'll be lifted up and when he is, all people will be lifted, will be drawn to him. But he's going to come and not to, 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 to come against those who are in difficulty, but in fact to help the humble, those who are bruised, those who are smoldering, if you will, those who are blind spiritually, those who are captive to sin. He'll come and he'll release those captives, give sight to the blind. He'll strengthen those who are bruised. He will give life to those who are nearly extinguished. That's what he will do. And we find all of that in this very one Jesus because he will bring justice when he comes that is righteousness that is he'll set everything right now we come here in this servant of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 49 and here's what I hope to accomplish today I hope that through this particular passage what we've read your faith will be increased and your faith will be increased by understanding the logic of God. Right? That your faith will be increased by understanding the logic of God. That is His reasoning. You know, so often we, we try to give reasons for why we believe in Jesus and all, all of that. And, and well, we should. Because while we come with faith, faith is the assurance of things not seen. That does not mean at all that it's unreasonable. That reason cannot help us and help found and ground our faith. God reasons with us. And so we have to track with Him. And so as He comes to to reason with us, we need to hear His explanation. And that's the authoritative, infallible explanation. That's the one that should feed our faith. That's what should feed our soul. So let me give you the the logic of God first, and then we're going to work our way back through it from Isaiah chapter 43 through Isaiah 49, and then work our way through this, this whole text. So let me, let me just give it to you so you see what God is building to. He will say to the people of Judah that they are not to follow false gods or idols. And he will say that what distinguishes the true and living God himself from those idols is that the real God determines the future. It isn't simply that he knows the future, like he's more insightful than everybody else can figure it out. It isn't only that he's omniscient and can see what can happen. But the reason that that he knows the future is that he's sovereign over it. He determines it. Nothing can thwart his plan. And he says, if you look at your idols, what you find is that they're, they're, they're mute and stupid. You make them. You enthrone them. They're no better than you. And so they can't determine. Ask them what happened in the past. Ask them what's going to happen in the future. They can't tell you. But I can And so then he begins to lay something out for the people of Judah. And he says, let me tell you something. The Babylonians are going to come and exile you. Now understand that Isaiah the prophet wrote in the 700s B.C. So just keep that in mind. He says, the Babylonians are going to come and you're going to be exiled, which means you're going to be taken by force from Judah and and spread out 
in the lands of the Babylonians. And the reason they did that was because they want to break your spirit. Because they figure if they can move you from here, from Judah, from Jerusalem, and, and you'll intermingle in their culture, you'll forget your God and you'll become like them. That was their strategy. It's a good one. By the way, Satan's still using that. Right? Still using that strategy to exile people into the world to keep them from God. And if we can enculturate ourselves in the world, then we won't be following after God. So Satan still uses But that was, their, that was their political, that was their military, that was their strategy to get people to, to be theirs and to integrate, therefore, into the, their own culture. He says, that's going to happen. And then he says, what's going to happen is that I'm going to raise up a man by the name of Cyrus. And he's going to come. He'll be a Persian. He's going to come and he's going to defeat the Babylonians. And he's going to then call the people of Judah back to Jerusalem so that you can rebuild the city. So that's all going to happen. Now just parenthetically, it wasn't until 586 that the Babylonians exiled the people of Judah over a hundred years after Isaiah wrote. But amazingly, in 555 BC, remember BCs go towards zero, so we're going 559 BC, amazingly, 150 years almost after Isaiah prophesied, a man by the name of Cyrus led the Persians into battle. And in 539 B.C., Cyrus and the Persians overtook the Babylonians. And then the prophet Ezra begins with this statement. Ezra, in chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this would be 539, maybe 538 BC, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, it, it, the, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he might, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, thus says the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So all the people would return. Now notice, Ezra speaks of Jeremiah, not Isaiah. While Jeremiah doesn't cite Cyrus, it's Jeremiah that says, don't worry, you'll only be in captivity a certain number of years and then you'll go back. So this was fulfilling the prophet of Jeremiah. Now here's God's logic. He's saying this. I want you to know that I know the future because I determine it. And here's how it's going to play out. Now, once you see that, you'll know that I'm God. Because there's someone else I want you to trust who's coming. There's someone else I want you to trust who's coming. And what he's going to do is way bigger than what Cyrus did. But my logic is this. First, I want to prove to you, very amazingly condescending of God. He doesn't have to do that. He could say, you know, look around. I've already proven it. But okay. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Idols don't determine the future. Don't trust them. God determines the future. Trust Him. Here's the future. 
when it comes to pass, I want you to know that the other thing I'm telling you, the bigger thing I'm telling you, the more significant thing I'm telling you than just about Cyrus and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, then you'll believe that. And it's this servant of the Lord he wants us to believe. All right? All right. Go back, please, quickly, just so you know I'm not lying. Isaiah chapter 44. God begins to make his case. Actually, well, just put your finger there, just so we get this from the beginning. Uh, Go back to chapter 39. We'll just catch this. Isaiah 39, verse 5. I'm not going to read all these chapters, just bits and pieces, just so you can follow them along. You should read these passages. They're amazing passages, especially the passages about idolatry. Because you'll read the passages about idolatry, and your response will be, Wow, that's stupid to have an idol. Yet we do. Okay, Isaiah chapter 39, verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. So that's the Babylonian captivity. And then chapter 44. Uh, Isaiah now starts this march to tell us more significantly about that. Verse 6, he says, Thus says the Lord, King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside, there, beside me there is no God. He was like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? In other words, he's saying, I'm God. I'm the one who told you about all this stuff. I'm the one who declared it. Trust me. Why do you trust anyone else? And you're my witnesses. He says, the whole nation is my witness. I've been telling Israel stuff all the way since Abraham. I told you about the captivity in Egypt. I told you that you'd be delivered. And you were. Your whole history has been me telling you and then fulfilling it. So here we go again. Why are you not trusting me? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And and then he proceeds down and tells him about the folly of of all this idolatry. Why would you do this? Think about it. He says, this is crazy, you people. You you take a, a, a person and he grows a cedar tree. And he takes that cedar tree and he builds a fire and keeps warm. And then he bakes his bread by it. And then he builds an idol with it. It's the same tree. Hello? Well, why, why is this impressive to you? Why would you bow down to it? And then, of course, in verse 17, he says, And the rest of it, that which he doesn't use for the fire and to help him keep warm and bake his bread, and the rest of it, he makes into a god his idol and falls down and worship it, worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. He says, Isn't that crazy? No, we don't do quite that, do we? What do we bow to? Of our own making, that we says, "Oh, you can satisfy me, sports. You can satisfy me, relationships. You can satisfy me, money. You can you can satisfy me, prestige. You can satisfy me, position. You can satisfy me. So I'm going to bow down to you and trust that you're going to satisfy me." And he says, well, "Why would you think that? Your money can't determine your future, because it might not be in your future. Your health can't determine your future. It might not be in your future." Your position might not determine your future. It might not be in your future, you see. 
So, so why do you trust it? He said, trust me. I determine the future. I know what's going on here. Trust in me. And so he goes on to speak to them about himself. So verse 23 of Isaiah 44, he says, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. He says, listen, I know know what you're saying, that you're going to be in captive uh, and and exiled by by the Babylonians. But but I'm going to come and I'm going to redeem you. Trust me. I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. And so he calls himself the Redeemer. Then in verse 28 of Isaiah 44, he puts it like this. He said, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose? Saying of Jerusalem, He shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus, chapter 45, verse 1, says, The Lord who is anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I've grasped, to subdue the nations before him and loose the belts of the king, to open the doors before him, that the gates may not be closed, and so forth and so on. Notice what he calls Cyrus. I mean, he really elevates him. He calls him the shepherd, right? The king, the shepherd. He calls him his anointed, which is Hebrew for Messiah. So there's a sense in which he's going to deliver the people. That's going to be Cyrus's role here. Now, you, you know, it's always dangerous to call your shot. <laughs> it's, it's one thing to be general about these kinds of things, but it's another thing to be really specific about these things. When you're playing pool, you say, I'm going to make this ball in. That's different than saying, in the side pocket, right? Uh, and so he's saying, I'm calling my shot. It's going to be Cyrus. Now, it's interesting. Some have said that really there's no predictive prophecy here at all, that Isaiah was simply a good student of history and politics. And so he was able to to study the day and he was seeing even then there's some cracks in the Babylonian Empire. And he was seeing even then some strength in the Persian Empire. And he was seeing even then that there could be a dynasty that would arise in the Persian Empire under the name of Cyrus, common name, common theme. So, So perhaps he was just thinking that ahead. And others have said, well, you know, there's no predictive prophecy in here because there's a second Isaiah. There's the Isaiah of the first 39 chapters, and then there's an Isaiah of chapter 40 on. And the Isaiah of chapter 40 on was the Isaiah that was writing after the exile. He wrote after all this took place, and he just sort of laid it out in sort of a predictive prophecy kind of way. But you realize, if that's the case, then all of this is utterly internally inconsistent. Because God's point is, I can determine the future. Trust me. And if, if, if what's really here is Isaiah guessing the future, or somebody after the fact coming and showing us what was going to take place because it had taken place, then it's simply proving God can't determine the future. And he's no God at all. So why trust him with anything? It undermines everything. If this isn't predictive, it undermines everything. Because the logic of God is, I determine the future, therefore, trust me. Don't trust these other gods. And so if we find a way to show that it really wasn't predictive, then we've undermined everything. So toss it. Don't believe any of it. But he says, this one is going to come. And then we come now to chapter 45 and verse 4. 
And God says, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. Uh, I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other beside me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There's no other Uh, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So he's saying, you don't know me, Cyrus. My people don't know you. You're not from my people. You're going to be outside of my people. I don't know you. You're not from Israel. You're not from Judah. You're not... You're going to be from outside. So he, he, he tells us a bit more even about Cyrus. And, and then if you're, in, if you're from Judah and you say, wait a minute, I don't want this, this outsider to come and deliver us. I don't want that. Then he responds in verse 9 and says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among the earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what, is, what are you in labor? So he says to Cyrus, if you don't like my choosing of you to do this, tough. He says to the people of Judah, if you don't like me choosing someone from outside to deliver you, tough. I'm God. I'm telling you right now, I'm the one who does this. So just, this is the plan. Just deal with it. Understand, that's where we're headed here. Understand, that's where we're going. And then in chapter 46, he says, now, okay, when the Babylonians come, don't follow their false gods. Don't become one with them. Understand their plan. Be wise to it. When they exile, you know what they're going to do. They're going to try to integrate you into their culture. Don't do that. So he says, here's about their false gods. And in chapter 47, then he says, okay, Babylon is going to be destroyed. Just like I said, it really is. And then we come to, finally, chapter 49. This passage that I laid out for you. In the very beginning, listen to me, O coastlands. He says, okay, first of all, this is the servant speaking. This is the very one who is the servant of the Lord. This is autobiographical. He's the one speaking here. In chapter 42, it was was the Lord speaking of the servant. Now the servant is saying, I want you to listen to me. Listen to me, O coastlands. So he's not only speaking to the people of Judah, he's speaking to the people in the coastlands that is all the way to the ends of the earth. He's saying, listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. And that little expression is used very often of the prophets. Prophet Jeremiah said, the Lord called me from my mother's womb. So you get the sense that who's ever speaking here, this servant is one who has a prophetic office. Somebody who's going to speak truth. Somebody who's going to, to lay that out for the people. And then verse 2 reinforces that. It says, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. This idea of being a sharp sword is, is, is the prophetic tongue, if you will. One who's going to cut to the, the very heart of the matter. So you see a prophet, but could it be Isaiah? Could it be Jeremiah? Could it be one of the prophets about which he's speaking? And the answer is it doesn't seem that way because he says he's going to conceal him. He's going to hide him. You don't know him right now. And and these other prophets were known. They became known. In fact, Isaiah was quite well known. He was even called to prophesy naked. If you read Isaiah chapter 20, it's a little bit unnerving. Uh, There's some debate as to whether or not he simply had on a loincloth or was utterly naked. But either way, he wasn't concealed. If you want to be hidden, don't walk around naked. 
That's just one of those rules of life. And so he wasn't, it can't be Isaiah, it wasn't him. It wasn't, he was revealed. So they knew him. So who could it be, this one hidden? And then he says, but I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. It's surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. He's saying, it looks like during the course of my time that I'm not being successful. It's a wearying task to be this servant of the Lord. But notice verse 3. I skipped that one, sorry. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now, that's an interesting expression. As we try to find out who this servant is. He says he's Israel. Is he really the nation? We know the nation of Israel was to glorify God. No question about that. But this one seems different because he's speaking. The nation doesn't speak. He's formed in his mother's womb. It seems more personal than a nation. That isn't nation talk. That's not how nations are formed. That's not uh, 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 even a figurative image of a nation being formed. So in what sense is this servant Israel? Is he the nation? Then we look in verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb uh, to be his servant, to bring, back, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. And you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you're Israel, how are you going to bring Israel back? Uh, how can you be? That doesn't make sense. You must, there must be something here other than just being the nation of Israel. Certainly you're to one who is to glorify God. And he goes on to say, For I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. In verse 6 he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So again you go, okay, when he calls himself Israel, he's not the nation, because he's bringing back the nation. Who could he be? He says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I suppose it was like any other day in a shepherd's life. Uh, There you were attending the sheep. You're working the night shift. The day shift, shepherds have gone. You've shared your notes about the sheep and how they are and what they did. Settling in for a, a night of shepherding sheep. And then all of a sudden an angel appears. Just one. And this angel says, I want to tell you something. That there has been born tonight in the city of Jerusalem. The Savior is Christ the Lord. And then all of a sudden a heavenly host appears. Now I don't know what you think about when you think of a heavenly host. But the Bible speaks of the heavenly host as the angelic military as the warriors of God and here they are singing about this saying glory to God in the highest on earth peace goodwill the very goodwill of God upon whom his favor rests with those whom he pleased and you go whoa something's happened something huge has happened and you you realize that God had said in Isaiah chapter 49 that there's one that's coming that's going to embody the nation of Israel, the real people of God. He's going to be the righteous ones. He's going to be the ones who, the one who glorifies God as his people should have glorified God. He's going to glorify God with perfect obedience. He's going to glorify God in a way that, that will show God in all his, his fullness. And we see at that moment the very logic of God. The logic of God that says, listen, I want to tell you something. You're going to be exiled. 
Cyrus is going to come and he's going to bring you back. Believe that. Because I want you to believe this one who's bigger than Cyrus. I want you to believe this one who's my servant. I want you to believe that he is really going to come. And when he comes, he's going to be a light for the nations. That salvation may reach the ends of the earth. All that Cyrus was going to be called to do, all that Cyrus was going to be able to do, is take this exiled people and bring them back to Jerusalem. But you know, after they got back to Jerusalem, the glory of God didn't appear like they thought it might. The glory of God didn't appear like they thought it should after the temple was rebuilt. In fact, they said, you know, it just, it just isn't the way we thought it would be. Because we thought that when the Messiah came, we thought when all this was said and done, that, that everything would be set right and everything isn't set right. This isn't really it yet. And, and Isaiah would have said, of course not. It's just a preliminary. That was just a picture. That was just to get you to trust me. That was just for you to realize that I am God, that I determine the future. Now, I want, you to t- I want you to remember what else I told you. There's this servant who's coming, and he's bigger than all of that. It, in fact, it's too small a thing, too light a thing, that he should just raise up the tribes of Jacob. It's going to be bigger than that. He's going to go to the nations, and he's going to bring my salvation to the whole nations. Now, bank on that. And they said, well, God, can we trust you? He said, didn't I tell you about Cyrus? Didn't that all work out? Then in the 700 B.C.s, I told you what was going to happen in 586 B.C. And then I told you what was going to happen in 559 B.C. And then I told you what was going to happen in 539 B.C. Don't you get it? Don't you know? I told you all that. Now, Now, bank on me. And now this day where the shepherds come. And all of a sudden, you begin to see it. It must have been like that day in 539 when, when Cyrus comes into, in, in, into the, the, the Babylonian Empire and exiles the people of Judah. Don't you think somebody thought, oh, wow, Cyrus, I've heard that name before. I bet that's, hey, we're going home. And so there's a sense in which you see. On that day, when those angels showed up and said, oh, he's going to be a light to the Gentiles. Oh, he's going to glory to God in the highest. He's going to be the very glory of God. Somebody said, oh, we're going home. In fact, there was a man named Simeon. You might remember him. There was a man named Simeon, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Scripture says, and he was a righteous man. And by the providence of God, the leading of the Holy Spirit, he found himself in the temple on the day that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus there as they were in the appointed way. And Luke lays this out for us in Luke in chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's Messiah. And he came in the Spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, I mean, you get this picture. Here's Simeon. He's been thinking about this his, his whole life. The Spirit of God somehow impressed upon him that he would see the Messiah. Uh, that's huge. And somehow Luke knew about that. I don't know before or after, but Luke knew about that to be able to write this down. And so he goes into the temple. How many times had he gone into the temple? I don't know if he went into the temple looking around every week. He probably signed up for nursery duty. You know, just to say, oh, maybe I'll find him. I don't, I don't know. But there he was, and at that moment he saw Mary Joseph Jesus, and he said, ah, notice. Took him in his arms and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. He said, I could die. 
according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He said, Isaiah talked about this one. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And Jesus was the light. I mean, he came as the light. I mean, we read in our, our, our affirmation of faith, our profession of faith this morning from, from the Gospel of John. He was the light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He was the very glory of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He's made Him known. When the angels pronounced glory to God in the highest, when, when Simeon said He's the glory of God, it meant He's going to reveal God. You're going to be able to look at Him and see God. So Jesus did miracles. They get a snatch of the glimpse of the glory of God. Wow. Turned water into wine. The, the disciples saw the glory of God. When he would heal people, we see the glory of God manifested in him. When he would teach, they would say, nobody teaches like him. He would forgive sins. And people's sins against God would be forgiven. The very glory of God. It was the day when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus on the mount and they saw him as he is, transfigured the glory of God before their very eyes. God was revealed through him. You remember on the night that he was betrayed, Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I'm the manifestation of the very glory of God, the very essence of God. You should see me in Him, the very glory of God. He was a light. He said, I'm the light of the world. You can see everything by me, through me. See nothing apart from me, not really. But when I'm here, you see it all through who I am, through, through me. And he was not only the light to the Israelites, oh, he was that. He came first for the Israelites. But, but we see as, as, as we read through the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Matthew, we see Gentiles popping up all over the place. In the genealogy of Jesus there we find Rahab and Ruth. What are they doing there? Huh. We see that he goes to the Galilee of the Gentiles. We see that the centurion who's a Gentile comes to Jesus and he commends, Jesus does, the centurion's face. We see the Can faith. We see the Canaanite woman coming to Jesus. It's not an Israelite. We see Jesus commending her faith. I haven't seen faith like this, he says, even among you Israelites. Wow. And then we see in this commandment, as Jesus gives this commission to his disciples, he says, go into all the world. Go to every nation. Take this word to every nation. In fact, before Jesus ascends, he sits with his disciples and he's there with them. And he says, now I want you to wait in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you so that you may be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, yes. But also in Samaria. Whew, who would have thought? But not only that, to the ends of the earth. 
So it's going to go all the way to the ends of the earth. And so the disciples of Jesus took it, not always voluntarily, but took it to the ends of the earth. In fact, there was a day when he took one man who was a Pharisee, and he says, I'm going to commission you most especially. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to cause you to lead the way to the Gentiles. In fact, after Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, was arrested by Jesus on that road to Damascus. And he sent this man, Ananias, uh, to go pray with him. He speaks to Ananias and he says, this is what you should tell him. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. So everybody, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And that played out. That played out in the life of this one who was the apostle. For when he was early on in his work, early on in his being sent by Jesus, he goes to Pisidian Antioch and he meets with all of the authorities and all of the Israelites who come to the temple. And we read this in chapter 13 of Acts, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what had been spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, they took that salvation, what was it? It was the very glory of God. Jesus came to reveal God. And he revealed God to us. Most specifically, if you will, in his death and resurrection. It was there that we saw the very glory of God. Because it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he was with his disciples and he took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus would give his body. Why? Well, for them, for us. Why? To glorify his Father. To reveal his Father. To show his Father's greatness. How did they do that? Well, he said, me for you. Because you see, in the holiness of God, your sin causes him to judge you, to condemn you, to separate himself from you. If you're going to be reconciled to him, then that breach must be made up. Someone must pay. If it's you, it'll be eternal. It won't affect anything other than your condemnation. So he says, I come to reveal the glory of God, his holiness. He can't abide sin. And then he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this cup and eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And you see, it's there in this blood that we see not only the holiness of God, but the love of God. Me for you, him for us. 
the glory of God. And this isn't just for Jewish people. It's for all people. This is for great CPC people. It's for all people. We're to go to the ends of the earth with this. To bring light everywhere. And so we see that. We see people coming throughout generations from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He says, I want you to believe this. I want you to go. Now why? Why should we trust him? What's his logic? His logic is, why trust anyone else? Only trust the one who can determine the future. Who is that? Do you remember? Back in the 700s BC, I told Isaiah, through him and the people, that there was going to be an exile. They were going to be exiled by the Babylonians. But then I would raise up one named Cyrus, who would come and deliver them and restore them back to Jerusalem. And that happened. Don't you remember? 586, 559, 539 B.C. it happened. Don't you remember? At the same time, I was telling you about another who was to come, a servant. He would be my servant. He would be my chosen. He would be the one who would obey me perfectly as my people should have. Thus I'll call him Israel. He is the one who will be a light to all people, to show people who I am. He will be my glory. He will glorify me. There was one who came. I announced him by angels to shepherds. Remember? I said, glory to God in the highest. Here's the one born. He'll be a light. And he said, I am the light of the world. He proved it by giving sight to the blind. We saw his glory. As he went to the cross, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that he might glorify you. And he did. He showed the holiness of God and the love of God. And he brought salvation to all who would believe, to Jew, to Gentile. Because the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. To all who believe, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, to people, to the ends of the earth. Have you not seen that? He says, now trust me. Believe me. Anchor your whole soul to me. Let's pray. Father, and pray for me and for us that we would believe you, that we would trust you, that we wouldn't be anchored to any idols but anchored to you by faith in Christ strengthen that deepen that cause us to leave today more convinced than ever before that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God and there is life by believing in him and him alone please I pray Don't let us waver. Don't let us look to another. Don't allow us to be satisfied by any that might come along. Any of our own making or the making of another. But Father, cause us to trust in Christ. And Him alone. Set apart, I pray, this bread and this juice in such a way that will cause us to think about Him. Lord Jesus, meet with us here.
strengthen us. Where we're bruised, touch us and bring healing. Where we're smoldering, blow upon us and bring us to full flame. Where we're enslaved, free us. That we may trust in you and you alone. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.